Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we are joined by Abhijit Singh, Institutional Portfolio Manager of the Emerging Markets Fund. He gives us an overview of his fund and his thoughts on investment opportunities he's keeping an eye on. Abby shares his thoughts on China's slow growth. A lot of consumers are sitting on cash and not spending. Abby says valuations do look attractive in China, so they are overweight China relative to the benchmark weight. They anticipate the valuation gap will close over time. He adds the Chinese-U.S. relationship is crucial and a good sign where both economies need each other. On the other side, Abby says the valuations in India are expensive, which includes all sectors in comparison to emerging markets or developed markets. He says because of this, they are underweight India. So far, the picks they do have are working very well. He adds the consumer story in India is much smaller than in China. However, he thinks we'll see a large number of companies going public in the next five to 10 years. This podcast was recorded on November 15th, 2023. I have to ask you that one of the main news items today, and it's a massive geopolitical story, is that President Xi of China is meeting with President Biden in California later today. Uh, there's sort of talk of a thawing of relations, or that's that's the general thought there. Um, what do you think of China as an investment? We'll talk about other places too, but it just feels like the right day to come at you with this. Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, as we know, as uh, China came out of COVID, things uh, started off good, but then slowed down quite a bit. And we've seen the markets uh, respond to that. Uh, Chinese equities have underperformed, uh, emerging markets, developed markets, and uh, and the valuations because of that look very attractive to us. So we are overweight China in our fund relative to the benchmark weight uh, in anticipation that uh, that uh, you know that gap will close over time, and and we're hoping that that happens. Uh, the thawing of the relationships is a good sign. I think a lot of it is because both sides need each other. The U.S. economy needs uh, some help from China. Chinese economy needs help from the U.S. So hopefully, as we move through this process, you'll hear some positive things. It doesn't change the long-term dynamic around uh, uh, some competition in certain parts of the you know, supply chains in, in AI space or in semiconductor space. But nonetheless, it's, uh, it's better to be talking than not talking. So it's, it's right. a good sign. It's better than the alternative for trade and, and for economic prospects. I'll, I'll just ask you, though, I mean, for those that uh, companies, for instance, that have either left China or are concerned about um, operations in China, the, the charge is that the, that the government is too heavy handed and absolutely has been too involved in companies that are public. Um, how do you view that? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, definitely a lesson for the Chinese government based on the last couple of years, you know, the regulatory crackdown on their own companies was quite severe in, in a lot of sectors. And you saw the backlash, you know, in terms of the employment data, other things are kind of slowed down. And you combine that with at the same time having an issue uh, in the real estate market. All that has led to having, you know, maybe like some concerns around being a little bit more business friendly going forward. Uh, but the, the move to kind of diversifying supply chains uh, for a lot of global companies is real, and, and that's going to continue. I would say the near-shoring trend of uh, companies moving uh, factories closer to, say, North America and Mexico, uh, northern Mexico, etc. Uh, those trends are still here to stay. Uh, but I think from China perspective, 
they're a lot more concerned about you know the consumption story like the consumer being concerned sitting on cash not necessarily buying big ticket items so a lot of the emphasis i would say from a uh, from a you know fiscal and monetary policy is comes at that and then at the same time you know balance out and support the real estate sector which has been uh, you know a tough place so this is the pivot for China that's discussed is that it is the the pivot to the consumer to the internal market to less on the trade exporting side of things um and and that that is growing you must have faith that that is growing correct yeah so there are, there are a lot of good innovative companies that are operating in China making products and services in China for Chinese consumption uh, and you find a lot of you know companies that were trading maybe a little bit on the high side looking very inexpensive today so that kind of gives us confidence and a lot of our confidence in china is around that consumption story the consumer discretionary space where we have a, a good a good size overweight in the fund relative to the benchmark fascinating so interesting to get your take there a place that is um uh not well priced for equities Correct. is india <laughs> tell us a little bit about there's a very good companies in india and everyone seems to want to get in there what what sort of exposure do you have there and is it a time to be adding or or even selling i mean tell us about valuations in india so uh, valuations in india are the other side of this uh, they're very expensive so consumer companies tech companies everything in india banks other things look quite expensive relative to the em market and developed markets as well so india is something where we have uh, underweight uh, but our stock selection there the things that we like have really worked so We've, we've picked the right stocks, but stayed underweight because of concerns about valuation. Uh, a lot of our exposure there is more focused on the infrastructure side of things. Uh, you know, building, uh, you know, Larson Tubro or, or companies that are doing work in the engineering and construction space. Because India does need to put in, as I've talked about in the past, like at least multiple decades of infrastructure spending to become up to par. Right? If you want to be competing for global destination for manufacturing and, and distribution, then you need to have that infrastructure in place because you know goods don't move from a factory to the port on, it, on their own. You need the rails, you need the roads, you need the trucks, you need all these things that I think they realize that they need to build. So our exposure there, I would say is pretty well positioned. If we see a pullback in valuations or new companies coming to market uh, uh, that are attractive uh, in terms of uh, you know, price point, then we might add to those names. But uh, primarily, uh, the story, consumer story in India is still relatively new, much smaller compared to China. Uh, but you're going to see a, you know, a boatload of companies coming public in the next five or 10 years. They're going to be playing that consumption theme as well. So we're there. We're looking for companies. And hopefully, uh, when the time is right, we'll, uh, we'll invest in those types of ideas. Can you invest in private companies that are coming to market? Uh, uh, not before they go public. So one of the things that Sam uh, adamantly avoids is IPOs. So we, we want to give companies uh, an opportunity to kind of show us how they behave as a public company, uh, you know, for multiple quarters. And then if we get comfortable with the quality of the management team and, 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 and behavior, quote unquote, as a public company, then we would consider it as an investment option. So, so, yeah. so private companies, not so much. IPOs, not so much. But good companies that uh, you know have great governance in place and, and an opportunity in front of them find those attractive 
Oh, so fascinating. Okay. And um, I'm going to ask you about the all important US dollar, where it's going and what it means for this entire discussion in just a second. But I wanted to get to Brazil because Brazil is a place I know you've looked at over the course of obviously many years. But what, what comes to mind right now in terms of your exposure there? So we, we are overweight on a relative basis to the benchmark and the backs of uh, feeling that, you know, the rate cut cycle has started in Brazil and there's a long way to go. Uh, I think the real rates are still quite high. And uh, as they get comfortable with the Fed, uh, with where the Fed might be going, you'll see more rate cuts and support for the economy. So net net, we're positive on Brazil. The valuations uh, still look quite good. Uh, it's added value for us being there and uh, we've added more to it because we feel there's still a lot, a uh, lot of room to grow. Uh, we've attended a few uh, conferences recently that have added to that confidence. So Brazil is definitely a place we feel, at least in the near, near, near to midterm, uh, can deliver outperformance relative to other markets. So yeah, it's positive on Brazil for now. Positive on Brazil. Okay. So tell us about the U.S. dollar. So, so it looks like from various data that's been coming in last week and this week, that inflation in the U.S is in fact being beaten. Um, the rates hikes have worked. It's one narrative. I don't know if it's the way you see the world, but um, equities have, have rallied on this certainly in the last little while. So what does it mean for the US dollar? Does it, does it, does it change your view on the, out, on the outlook for the US dollar over the sort of medium and, and longer term? I think if we start seeing a trend uh, in terms of inflation data continuing to kind of uh, tame, uh, then that's a good sign because the dollar is going to, you know, stabilize, maybe weaken a little bit. That's a net positive for risk assets or emerging markets in particular. Uh, you know, so combination of that with like some uh, good stimulus coming out of China to support their economy uh, could be a good tailwind for EM uh, going forward. Uh, the the question is going to be like what happens next. Obviously, we can't predict, you know, the geopolitics of the world. Uh, you, you can always have like, you know, events that were that are unplanned or unseen, unforeseen that can lead to again a move in a move into dollar. But uh, at least for now, it looks like we're we're getting to a point where the Fed is getting to the end end of this cycle that should lead to if, even if not rate cuts, at least stabilization of rates, which would be a, again a good good tailwind to have. Fantastic. I want to ask you about a couple of different themes um, right now. We seem to um, talk an awful lot about AI, about certain pharmaceutical stories as well. I, want, I wonder if those are as enhanced in other parts of the world. My, my guess is no, but I mean, for instance, how do you look at AI? Do you invest in companies that might be doing uh, AI or stand to, to reap the benefits of it in the emerging markets? Uh, to a certain extent, uh, you know, a company like TSMC, Definitely has exposure to AI, has exposure to NVIDIA, and it's a real deal, good, good, inexpensive way to play it. Uh, what we don't want to do is kind of uh, chase the the high flyers or like where you know, there's too much euphoria. So there are a bunch of companies that are based in Taiwan. They are in uh, uh, low margin businesses where they make boxes for servers and things like that. And their exposure to AI, you know, is, can be anywhere from like three to like six, seven percent of their revenue, um, but they are up like 150 to 300%, some of them, in terms of uh, year-to-date moves in their stock. That's not where we want to be. So that's a challenge in the near term uh, because, you know, obviously not owning those names has hurts your relative performance, 
but it, it's not sustainable. So I think like that euphoria, uh, as it settles down, it's going to go back to the companies that are truly really going to be in, uh, going to benefit from this, uh, you know, longer term trend. So uh, cautious, uh, but uh, you know, having exposure to some of these more established companies, way to go for now. You mentioned industrial in terms of India's um, plans to make sure that their infrastructure is is going to take them into you know, the centuries ahead and so on. Within the industrial area, what, what else is of interest? Maybe in other parts of the world. So, um, so part of the story coming out of the, you know, the war starting in Eastern Europe was like looking for ideas. Uh, we look for ideas in defense in particular. So uh, aerospace and defense space, like uh, the Korean aerospace company that uh, makes uh, uh, trainer jets for F, 16s and F-35s, and, and they are gaining a lot of traction outside, you know, their Korea and adjacent markets. They've won a lot of orders in uh, uh, in Middle East, in Eastern Europe, and, and also, uh, you know, uh, through their JV with Lockheed Martin are looking to uh, get an order in the U.S. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting story that uh, I think plays uh, well for a long term because a lot of the countries around the world, as you can expect, given the instability in the world from a geopolitical perspective are upping their spend on defense. So it's not just, you know, a, a one, one, one man show in terms of the U.S. leading the charge in terms of defense spending. Like Europeans are doing that. Uh, Middle East obviously has, uh, uh, as we've seen in the recent times, has issues. So we're seeing an uptick there and in Asia to, to counter some of the China, uh, you know, concerns that countries have around uh, Asia, Asia Pacific. So that type of name is is is, a, is something that wins in India, as you mentioned. Uh, infrastructure spending is is critical for them, so you like that uh, from a uh, industrials as well. And you tend to get like a what do you call a cyclical exposure within industrials as well. So right. uh, okay. as you go through the rate cycle and you go to the other side, and the economy you know starts you know doing better because the governments can the central banks can support their local economies more. You're going to see that uptick in uh, on on the investment side or the industrial side uh, that uh, that will be again we're positioned for that to happen. So our our fund is uh, a little bit more cyclically positioned today than it was say you know uh, six six to twelve months ago. And um, mentioning the Middle East in terms of investment, I think you or Sam have said in the past that it's a place that you have looked for companies to invest in. Over the years, are, are you currently exposed to any companies in the Middle East right now? Uh, not yet. We continue to look. So the areas that we like tend to be a little bit more expensive. So we have, in fact, we have a new analyst on our team who joined the last three months. Uh, one of the first assignments he was given was like, uh, why don't you travel to Middle East and 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 see if you can find something that we might have uncovered in our multiple trips in the region. So I haven't seen his report yet, but. Uh, I suspect it'll be hard to find something that's, you know, more growth at a reasonable price type of framework that has good governance. So we'll keep looking. It's an important part of the market. You know, it's, uh, I would say, like close to six, seven percent of the benchmark. So not having anything there is, uh, it's a little bit uh, unsettling. But, uh, you know, we need to stay true to the investment process and what we like in the companies before we invest. Right. So we're looking um, uh, still not pull the trigger or anything. Which, to reiterate, is GARP, growth at a reasonable price. That, right. That's, yeah, that's how you term that. Okay, I want to ask about Mexico, because we've 
we hear a lot about Mexico and and um, the nearshoring trend is something that you mentioned. Bring bring Mexico into the picture for us in terms of how you are exposed or, or would like to be. So a little cautious right now because Mexico oh. is going into a, in a election cycle next year. Right. So you always want to be a little bit careful around those things. But uh, in general, the nearshoring theme is very real, very interesting that uh, one of the conferences that we went to in New York, uh, a lot of the companies in Mexico were talking about this nearshoring trend. Uh, you know, there's been, uh, you know, upwards of $140 billion of new investment, foreign direct investment coming into northern part of Mexico year to date. And, and, and the, the reveal from that was like a lot of that is Chinese companies that are trying to expand their manufacturing base closer to North America uh, uh, to service the North American market. So that was, that came as a little bit of a surprise because, you know, conventional wisdom would be like people are trying to get away uh, from like, you know, uh, getting, uh, diversifying their supply chain away from the mainland China and so on. But you can see that the companies there itself are also doing that. So it's an interesting uh, find. Uh, I would say that would be, uh, you know, something that you keep looking and look for opportunities to play that. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be a company based in Mexico. It could be somebody else. Right. Say. Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, there's a couple number of questions rolling in here. So let's let's go to some of them. I think we've heard a lot about the demographic changes in China, just the directional sort of discussion there. So this question is, do demographic trends in India and China impact your investment decisions? Uh, I mean, they are kind of the underpinnings of, uh, you know, how you pick stocks and, and what you do. Like in China's case, it is an aging population. Uh, but at the same time, what that means is that there's going to be a huge amount of demand for healthcare services, healthcare technology, medical devices, all these other things that are kind of, uh, you know, they need to build up their capacity for uh, providing healthcare services to their uh, population. Uh, at the same time, the consumption story is still real. People are, you know, sitting on a lot of cash. They need to start spending on something. The more confidence comes back to the market, you're going to see that uptick. In India's case, it's a very young population. So India's, popula India's problem, problem is to kind of have uh, job creation. So you really need to have like a huge amount of jobs created there for the younger population. So investing in infrastructure, attracting manufacturing jobs, that's where the focus is. So, uh, you know, they've streamlined some of the, you know, the, uh, bureaucracy or the the the, the things that slow down uh, activity or movement of business uh, products across straight lines etc has been improved but there's a still a long way to go so but India's story is you know still a very young population growing population and that's that's where the consumer demand is also going to come in the future right so as as you get more uh, you know we um, call um, Sort of middle class well. income exactly disposable income going up you're going to see demand for uh, a lot of the consumption uh, related themes in India. so th yeah. there's a great question you're asking which sectors in emerging markets have investment potential right now it, it sounds like you're talking about the consumer a lot and and what would the other one industrials be? and consumer sector uh, we find them okay. uh, nicely priced and and, and ready for potential uptick as, as you see, uh, you know, improvement in sentiment and, and, and consumption stories kind of. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So um, broadly speaking, tell us a bit about India's success in terms of just 
having access to oil. It's been it's been a interesting. We don't need to go into the politics, but, but essentially, any Russian oil that could be sold to India was, and it wasn't an issue for India because they they didn't they didn't take a side basically, or they you know they didn't get involved basically. So, but what has that meant for the economy of India? Um, and really your investments there or other investments there. Yeah. It's actually surprised us, right? So one of the concerns coming out of the Russia-Ukraine situation was that places like India that are net importers of energy are going to have a tough time. But uh, I guess the West and the U.S. have allowed, uh, you know, or, or not created roadblocks for India to have access to uh, inexpensive Russian oil at a discount uh, during this period. So India is basically... Uh, getting the oil uh, at, at a pretty sizable discount, uh, and to to add to that, uh, instead of uh, you know transacting in the U.S. dollar, they are paying the Russians in rupees, and the Russians don't need rupees for anything else, so the rupees just stay in Indian banking system. So that's practically you know, from an economic standpoint, you're getting oil for free because the money is just staying there. So that's kind of been definitely helpful for the macro situation there. Uh, you know the the past you would worry about uh, you know these types of spikes in energy uh, but it's been definitely uh, more of a stabilizing factor and that's why the macro looks very positive in india even after you know the valuations reflect that so i would say that's that's why the market has done so well on a relative basis if we've rolled back the clock a few years um there was a massive change from from a cash society to a more digitized society in India and that, that benefited the banks then. Tell yep. us about financials in India now. Yeah, I, I think the private banks like HDFC Bank, they continue to be gaining share. And the uh, the as you rightly pointed out, the fintech story in India is very, very strong. Uh, not a lot of money made by some of the companies, uh, but because they're built on like a system that the government has put together in terms of financial transactions. Smallest of transactions in India, uh, roadside vendors, everybody accepts uh, electronic payment, which was not the case of a number of years ago. So everybody has a bank account and everybody has a you know a phone app that links to it, so you can pay for anything you want using that app, and, and that's really helped uh, you know reduce the you know the cash economy, you know make make everything and make it easier for the government also to. Uh, track transactions from a tax perspective and so on. So those are all positive things. I think long run helps India to be uh, a lot more of a you know tech driven economy and and obviously help you know the lower end of the consumption story uh, come up. People have more uh, access to banking, uh, access to you know uh, these payment tools, etc., which was not the case like five years ago. Definitely. A, uh, a great trend uh, in the right direction for uh, such a large country. Tell us a little bit about within sort of the industrial stories and and and, and the build out of any economy has got to be commodities. Um, I know you're not investing in, you know, silver or something, but how but how do you look at sort of the role of commodities within that industrial theme? I guess. So com commodities, uh, it, it's been interesting space, you know, uh, you know, as China kind of economy kind of struggles and transitions from like, you know, uh, infrastructure investment to like consumption story, India's uh, picking up the slack in terms of demand for commodities. Uh, and uh, so 
the way you invest in commodities, you look at basically these the supply demand situation and see how that unfolds. So a lot of our exposure there has been around uh, uh, places where Russia was a big player, uh, but uh, it's been harder to access, uh, you know, uh, uh, Russian platinum, palladium, etc. Uh, and so there are other companies that can step in in that space. The the issue with commodities is also that supply takes a long time to come online. Uh, it's not like you can start a, a mine tomorrow and have uh, production day after. It takes a long time. So it's it's a little bit of a challenge there, but uh, they definitely are uh, more cyclically oriented as well. So uh, that that's where our exposure is. So not a huge bet. They are not as a group. You know, energy and commodities are not a huge part of the emerging market benchmark anymore. They used to be like 10 to 15 years ago. So it's not like I don't, I'm not, you know, worried about the commodity cycle uh, day in day out. More concerned about the consumption stories and 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 the tech story or the semiconductor story, as opposed to you know the commodity side or energy side. Do people still ask you about the BRICS? Whether there's going to be a common currency? Because it's an interesting story. Yeah, uh, that's time will tell. It's very hard from where I sit to see that becoming a reality because the the economic systems, the political systems are very different for these uh, countries. So they're, they're oftentimes uh, pushing back at each other from a border perspective, like India and China are always like a little bit on, you know, different terms in terms of their common border. So I, I, it's very hard to see. India has like all or like hundreds of Chinese apps banned in 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 India, uh, EV market. Uh, Chinese EVs companies don't have access to market in India. So there are a lot of like political stuff uh, that has to, I would say, uh, be a, a roadblock in terms of getting to like a common currency for a lot of these countries. They can do a lot of trade one on one in their local currencies. But as I said, like if, if you buy Russian oil in rupees, Russia doesn't really need the rupees. So where do, what do they do with the rupees? Like they just leave it in the economy. Same thing if you want to do a trade between Malaysia and China, Malaysia and India in like a local currency. Um, dollar still is, you know, uh, a, like the primary uh, currency that's needed to do transactions across the world. So I don't but, see it changing anytime soon, but it is definitely a story to pay attention to going forward. Hmm, okay. Um, within that, actually, in South Africa, is, is South Africa of interest to you in terms uh, we of? We are overweight. Africa worked <laughs> because uh, they've had like uh, issues with the uh, power supply. Uh, they've been rolling blackouts and things like that over the last uh, 12 months or so. So that's had it had its toll on the on the economy. Uh, but things are looking up uh, in terms of uh, private and public supply of energy coming to the market. So hopefully at some point you'll start seeing the benefits of that, and and that could be as soon as early next year. And, and these uh, companies are trading at depressed valuations. So this is a good time to kind of anticipate that uh, turnaround in the economy there. Okay, a couple of great questions coming in. Let me put this to you. Um, yeah. Are the dynamics in India similar to uh, the so-called West regarding consumer debt and, and consumer confidence? That um, not so much. Uh, Indian market is not really like, consumer is not that debt happy, if that's the right word, uh, not used to having access to credit. 
Um, so a lot of the transactions do happen cash or, or a very high percentage of equity when you're buying a house. So it's, it's definitely not the same uh, mindset. Having said that, you know, as economies do develop and you get access to credit, you will expect like, the consumption story to be driven uh, by that credit cycle and things like that over time. But the banks are very stable. Um, you know, some of the best banks from a stability perspective are based in India. So uh, not, 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 not the same story. Okay. And just briefly, sorry, we only have a minute left, but I just wanted to get a sense. So you, you mentioned Korea, but are you, are you mentioned, are you exposed to ASEAN? That's the um, not, not right now. We don't have uh, any, any positions. I mean, we're a 50 stock portfolio. So sometimes we don't have a position in certain parts of the market. Uh, so right now we don't have anything in ASEAN, but uh, we, we're always looking for ideas. Like just the, uh, right place, right time, right valuation, uh, right kind of uh, environment from a uh, local market perspective, and, and we might find something that works. You know, Indonesia did really well for us a couple of years ago, but uh, we don't have anything there right now. Okay, and and just sort of to sum it up, you know, for Canadian investors, why you know we're making Canadian dollars, so it's it's its own story with the U.S. dollar. Maybe, maybe you mentioned it off the top, but why would they want to look? To emerging markets. Yeah. I think the diversification story is quite intact. You know, the the consumption story, the innovation story coming out of emerging markets. Uh, if you worry about the valuation of the U.S. market, then this is a good place to kind of have some diversification in place uh, sure. with, with access to growth, with access to innovation, and things like that. It's such a pleasure to have you here in Canada and to speak with you. Thank you, Abhijit Singh, for joining us here today. Welcome. Thanks. I have to ask you that one of, one of the main news items today, and it's a massive geopolitical story, is that President Xi of China is meeting with President Biden in California later today. Uh, there's sort of talk of a thawing of relations, or that's that's the general thought there. Um, what do you think of China as an investment? We'll talk about other places too, but it just feels like the right day to come at you with this. Yeah, definitely. I think. Uh... As we know, as uh, China came out of COVID, things uh, started off good, but then slowed down quite a bit. And we've seen the markets uh, respond to that. Uh, Chinese equities have underperformed, uh, emerging markets, developed markets, and uh, and the valuations because of that look very attractive to us. So we are overweight China in our fund relative to benchmark weight uh, in anticipation that uh, that uh, you know that gap will close over time and, and we're hoping that that happens. Uh, the thawing of the relationships is a good sign. I think a lot of it is because both sides need each other. The US economy needs uh, some help from China. Chinese economy needs help from the US. So hopefully as we move through this process, you'll hear some positive things. It doesn't change the long-term dynamic around uh, uh, some competition in certain parts of the you know supply chains and in, in, AI space or in semiconductor space, but nonetheless, it's uh, it's better to be talking than not talking. So that's it's a right. good sign. It's better than the alternative for trade and and for economic prospects. I'll, I'll just ask you though. I mean, for those that uh, companies, for instance, that have either left China or are concerned about um, operations in China, the, the charge is that the, that the government is too heavy-handed and absolutely has been too involved in companies that are public. Um, how do you view that? 
Yeah, I, I think that's uh, definitely a lesson for the Chinese government based on the last couple of years. You know, the regulatory crackdown on their own companies was quite severe in, in a lot of sectors. And you saw the backlash, you know, in terms of the employment data, other things are kind of slowed down. And you combine that with at the same time having an issue uh, in the real estate market. All that has led to having, you know, maybe like some concerns around being a little bit more business friendly going forward. Uh, but the the move to kind of diversifying supply chains uh, for a lot of global companies is real, and, and that's going to continue. I would say the near-shoring trend of uh, companies moving uh, factories closer to, say, North America and Mexico, uh, northern Mexico, etc. Uh, those trends are still here to stay. Uh, but I think from China perspective, they're a lot more concerned about you know the consumption story, like the consumer being concerned sitting on cash, not necessarily buying big ticket items. So a lot of the emphasis, I would say, from a, uh, from a you know, fiscal and monetary policy is jumpstart that, and then at the same time, you know, balance out and support the real estate sector, which has been, uh, you know, a tough place. So this is the pivot for China that's discussed, is that it is the, the pivot to the consumer, to the internal market, to less on the trade exporting side of things um, and, and that that is growing. You must have faith that that is growing. Correct. Yeah. So there are, there are a lot of good, innovative companies that are operating in China, making products and services in China for Chinese consumption. Uh, and you find a lot of, you know, companies that were trading maybe a little bit on the high side, looking very inexpensive today. So that kind of gives us confidence. And a lot of our confidence in China is around that consumption story, the consumer discretionary space, where we have a, a good a good size overweight in the fund relative to the benchmark. Fascinating. So interesting to get your take there. A place that is um, uh, not well-priced for equities Correct. is India. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about there's a very good companies in India and everyone seems to want to get in there. What what sort of exposure do you have there? And is it a time to be adding or or even selling? I mean, tell us about valuations in India. So uh, valuations in India are the other side of this. Uh, they're very expensive. So consumer companies, tech companies, everything in India, banks, other things look quite expensive relative to the EM market and developed markets as well. So India is something where we have uh, underweight. Uh, but our stock selection there, the things that we like have really worked. So. We've, we've picked the right stocks, but stayed underweight because of concerns about valuation. Uh, a lot of our exposure there is more focused on the infrastructure side of things, uh, you know, building, uh, you know, Larson Tubro or, or companies that are doing work in the engineering and construction space. Because India does need to put in, as I've talked about in the past, like at least multiple decades of infrastructure spending to become up to par, right? If you want to be competing for global destination for manufacturing and, and distribution, then you need to have that infrastructure in place because, you know, goods don't move from a factory to the port on it, on their own. You need the rails, you need the roads, you need the trucks, you need all these things that I think they realize that they need to build. So our exposure there, I would say, is pretty well positioned. If we see a pullback in valuations or new companies coming to market uh, uh, that are attractive uh, in terms of, uh, you know, price point, then we might add to those names. But uh, primarily, uh, the story, consumer story in India is still relatively new, much smaller compared to China. Uh, but you're going to see a, you know, a boatload of companies coming public in the next five, five, ten years. Yeah. They're going to be playing that consumption theme as well. So 
we're there. We're looking for companies, and hopefully, uh, when the time is right, we'll uh, we'll invest in those types of ideas. Can you invest in private companies that are coming to market? Uh, uh, not before they go public. So one of the things that Sam uh, adamantly avoids is IPOs. So we, we want to give companies uh, an opportunity to kind of show us how they behave as a public company, uh, you know, for multiple quarters. And then if we get comfortable with the quality of the management team and, 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 and behavior, quote unquote, as a public company, then we would consider it as an investment option. So, so, yeah. so private companies, not so much. IPOs, not so much. But good companies that, uh, you know, have great governance in place and, and an opportunity in front of them, find those attractive. Oh, so fascinating. Okay, and um, I'm going to ask you about the all-important U.S. dollar, where it's going, and what it means for this entire discussion in just a second. But I wanted to get to Brazil because Brazil is a place I know you've looked at over the course of obviously many years. But what what comes to mind right now in terms of your exposure there? Yeah, so we we are on a relative basis to the benchmark uh, on the backs of uh, feeling that you know the rate cut cycle has started in Brazil. And there's a long way to go. Uh, I think the real rates are still quite high, and uh, as they get comfortable with the Fed, uh, with where the Fed might be going, you'll see more rate cuts and support for the economy. So net net, we're positive on Brazil. The valuations uh, still look quite good. Uh, it's added value for us being there, and uh, we've added more to it because we feel there's still a lot, a uh, lot of room to grow. Uh, we've attended a few uh, conferences recently that have added to that confidence. So Brazil is definitely a place we feel, at least in the near 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 to midterm, uh, can deliver outperformance relative to other markets. So yeah, it's positive on Brazil for now. Positive on Brazil. Okay. So tell us about the U.S. dollar. So so it looks like from various data that's been coming in last week and this week, that inflation in the U.S. is in fact being beaten. Um, the rates hikes have worked. It's one narrative. I don't know if it's the way you see the world, but um, equities have, have rallied on this certainly in the last little while. So what does it mean for the U.S. dollar? Does it, does it, does it change your view on the, out, on the outlook for the U.S. dollar over the sort of medium and, and longer term? I think if we start seeing a trend uh, in terms of inflation data continuing to kind of uh, tame, uh, then that's a good sign because the dollar is going to, you know, Stabilize, maybe weaken a little bit. That's a net positive for risk assets or emerging markets in particular. Uh, you know, so combination of that with like some uh, good stimulus coming out of China to support their economy uh, could be a good tailwind for EM uh, going forward. Uh, the the question is going to be like what happens next. Obviously, we can't predict. You know, the geopolitics of the world. Uh, you you can always have like you know events that were that are unplanned or unseen, unforeseen. That can lead to again a move in move into dollar, but uh, at least for now it looks like we're we're getting to a point where the Fed is getting to the end end of this cycle. That should lead to, if, even if not rate cuts, at least stabilization of rates, which would be a, again a good good tailwind to have. Fantastic. I want to ask you about a couple of different themes um, right now. We seem to um, talk an awful lot about AI about certain pharmaceutical stories as well. I, want, I wonder if those are as enhanced in other parts of the world. My, my guess is no, but I mean, for instance, how do you look at AI? Do you invest in companies that might be doing uh, AI or stand to, to reap the benefits of it in the emerging markets? 
to a certain extent, uh, you know, a company like TSMC definitely has exposure to AI, has exposure to NVIDIA, uh, and it's a real deal, good, good, inexpensive way to play it. Uh, what we don't want to do is kind of uh, chase the the high flyers or the, where you know, there's too much euphoria. So there are a bunch of companies that are based in Taiwan. They are in uh, uh, low margin businesses where they make boxes for servers and things like that. And their exposure to AI, you know, is, can be anywhere from like three to like six, seven percent of their revenue. Um, but they are up like 150 to 300 percent, some of them, in terms of uh, year-to-date moves in their stock. That's not where we want to be. So that's a challenge in the near term uh, because, you know, obviously not owning those names has hurts your relative performance, but it, it's not sustainable. So I think like that euphoria, uh, as it settles down, it's going to go back to the companies that are truly really going to be in, uh, going to benefit from this, uh, you know, longer term trend. So uh, cautious, uh, but, uh, you know, having exposure to some of these more established companies, way to go for now. You mentioned industrial in terms of India's um, plans to make sure that their infrastructure is, is going to take them into, you know, the centuries ahead and so on. Within the industrial area, what, what else is of interest, maybe in other parts of the world? So, um, so part of the story coming out of the, you know, the war starting in Eastern Europe was like looking for ideas. Uh, we look for ideas in defense in particular. So, uh, aerospace and defense space, like uh, the Korean aerospace company that uh, makes uh, uh, trainer jets for F-16s and F-35s, and, and they are gaining a lot of traction outside, you know, their Korea and adjacent markets. They've won a lot of orders in uh, uh, in Middle East, in Eastern Europe, and, and also, uh, you know, uh, through their JV with Lockheed Martin are looking to uh, get an order in the U.S., uh, so that's kind of an interesting story that uh, I think plays uh, well for a long term because a lot of the countries around the world, as you can expect, given the instability in the world from a geopolitical perspective, are upping their spend on defense. So it's not just, you know, a, a one, one, one man show in terms of the U.S. leading the charge in terms of defense spending. Like Europeans are doing that. Uh, Middle East obviously has a uh, as we've seen in the recent times, has issues. So we're seeing an uptick there, and in Asia to to counter some of the China, uh, you know, concerns that countries have around uh, Asia, Asia Pacific. So that type of name is 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 a, is something that wins in India, as you mentioned. Uh, infrastructure spending is is critical for them. So you like that uh, from a uh, industrials as well, and you tend to get like a what you call a cyclical exposure within industrials as well. So Right. Uh, okay. As you go through the rate cycle and you go to the other side, and the economy, you know, starts, you know, doing better because the governments can, the central banks can support their local economies more. You're going to see that uptick in uh, on on the investment side or the industrial side. Uh, that uh, that will be again we're positioned for that to happen. So our our fund is uh, a little bit more cyclically positioned today than it was say, you know, uh, six six to twelve months ago. And um, mentioning the Middle East in terms of investment, I think you or Sam have said in the past that it's a place that you have looked for companies to invest in over the years. Are, are you currently exposed to any companies in the Middle East right now? Uh, not yet. We continue to look. So the areas that we like tend to be a little bit more expensive. So we have, in fact, we have a new analyst on our team who joined the last three months. Uh, one of the first assignments he was given was like, uh, 
why don't you travel to Middle East and 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 see if you can find something that we might have uncovered in our multiple trips in the region. So I haven't seen his report yet, but uh, I suspect it'll be hard to find something that's you know more growth at a reasonable price type of framework that has good governance. So we'll keep looking. It's an important part of the market. You know, it's uh, I would say like close to six seven percent of the benchmark. So not having anything there is uh, it's a little bit uh, unsettling, but uh, you know we need to stay true to the investment process and what we like in the companies before we invest, right? So we're looking, um, uh, still not pull the trigger or anything. Which to reiterate is GARP growth at a reasonable price. That, right. That's yeah, that's how you term that. Okay, I want to ask about Mexico because we've we hear a lot about Mexico and and um, the nearshoring trend is something that you mentioned, bring bring Mexico into the picture for us in terms of how you are exposed or, or would like to be. So a little cautious right now because Mexico oh. is going into an in, uh, election cycle next year. Right. So you always want to be a little bit careful around those things. But uh, in general, the nearshoring theme is very real, very interesting that uh, one of the conferences that we went to in New York, uh, a lot of the companies in Mexico were talking about this nearshoring trend. Uh, you know, there's been, uh, you know, upwards of $140 billion of new investment, foreign direct investment coming into northern part of Mexico year to date. And and, and the, the reveal from that was like a lot of that is Chinese companies that are trying to expand their manufacturing base closer to North America uh, uh, to service the North American market. So that was, that came as a little bit of a surprise because, you know, conventional wisdom would be, like people are trying to get away uh, from like, you know, uh, getting, uh, diversifying their supply chain away from the mainland China and so on. But right. you can see that the companies there itself are also doing that. So it's an interesting uh, find. Uh, I would say that would be, uh, you know, something that we keep looking and look for opportunities to play that. Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be a company based in Mexico. It could be somebody else. Okay. Right. Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, there's a couple number of questions rolling in here, so let's let's go to some of them. I think we've heard a lot about the demographic changes in China, just the directional sort of discussion there. So this question is: Do demographic trends in India and China impact your investment decisions? Uh, I mean, they are kind of the underpinnings of uh, you know how you pick stocks and and what you do. Like in China's case, it is an aging population. Uh, but at the same time, what that means is that there's going to be a huge amount of demand for healthcare services, healthcare technology, medical devices, all these other things that are kind of, uh, you know, they need to build up their capacity for uh, providing healthcare services to their uh, population. Uh, at the same time, the consumption story is still real. People are, you know, sitting on a lot of cash. They need to start spending on something. The more confidence comes back to the market, you're going to see that uptick. In India's case, it's a very young population. So India's, popula India's problem, problem is to kind of have uh, job creation. So you really need to have like a huge amount of jobs created there for the younger population. So investing in infrastructure, attracting manufacturing jobs, that's where the focus is. So, uh, you know, they've streamlined some of the, you know, the uh, bureaucracy or the, the the, the things that slow down uh, activity of movement of business uh, products across straight lines, et cetera, has been improved, but there's a, still a long way to go. So, but India's story is, you know, still a very young population, growing population, and, and that's 
that's where the consumer demand is also going to come in the future right so as as you get more uh, you know we um, call um, sort of middle class well. income exactly disposable income going up you're going to see demand for uh, a lot of the consumption uh, related things in india so th there's a great question you're asking which sectors in emerging markets have investment potential right now. It, it sounds like you're talking about the consumer a lot. And, and what would the other one? Industrials be? and consumer sector, uh, we find them uh, okay. nicely priced and, and, and ready for potential uptick as, as you see, uh, you know, improvement in sentiment and, and, and consumption stories kind of. That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So um, broadly speaking, Tell us a bit about India's success in terms of just having access to oil. It's been it's been a interesting. We don't need to go into the politics, but, but essentially, any Russian oil that could be sold to India was, and it wasn't an issue for India because they they didn't they didn't take a side basically, or they you know they didn't get involved basically. So, but what has that meant for the economy of India? Um, and really your investments there or other investments there. Yeah. It's actually surprised us, right? So one of the concerns coming out of the Russia-Ukraine Russia situation was that places like India that are net importers of energy are going to have a tough time. But uh, I guess the West and the U.S. have allowed, uh, you know, or, or not created roadblocks for India to have access to uh, inexpensive Russian oil at a discount uh, during this period. So India is basically... Uh, getting the oil uh, at, at a pretty sizable discount, uh, and to to add to that, uh, instead of uh, you know transacting in the U.S. dollar, they are paying the Russians in rupees, and the Russians don't need rupees for anything else, so the rupees just stay in Indian banking system. So that's practically you know, from an economic standpoint, you're getting oil for free because the money is just staying there. So that's kind of been definitely helpful for the macro situation there uh, you know the the past you would worry about uh, you know these types of spikes in energy uh, but it's been definitely uh, more of a stabilizing factor and that's why the macro looks very positive in india even after you know the valuations reflect that so i would say that's that's why the market has done so well on a relative basis if we've rolled back the clock a few years um there was a massive change from from a cash society to a more digitized society in India, and that, that benefited the banks then. Tell us yep. about financials in India now. Yeah, I, I think the private banks like HDFC Bank, they continue to be gaining share. And the, uh, the as you rightly pointed out, the fintech story in India is very, very strong. Uh, not a lot of money made by some of the companies, uh, but because they're built on like a system that the government has put together in terms of financial transactions, smallest of transactions in India, uh, roadside vendors, everybody accepts uh, electronic payment, which was not the case of a number of years ago. So everybody has a bank account and everybody has a, you know, a phone app that links to it. So you can pay for anything you want using that app. And, and that's really helped, uh, you know, reduce the, you know, the cash economy you know, make make everything and make it easier for the government also to uh, track transactions from a tax perspective and so on. So those are all positive things. I think long run helps India to be uh, a lot more of a, you know, tech driven economy and, and obviously help, you know, the lower end of the consumption story uh, come up. People have more uh, access to banking, 
uh, access to you know uh, these payment tools etc which was not the case like five like years five ago years. definitely, definitely. A, a great trend in the right direction for such a large country tell us a little bit about within sort of the industrial stories and and and, and the build out of any economy has got to be commodities um i know you're not investing in you know silver or something but how but how do you look at sort of the role of commodities within that industrial theme i guess so com commodities uh, it, it's been interesting space you know uh, you know as china kind of economy kind of struggles and transitions from like you know uh, infrastructure investment to like consumption story india's uh, picking up the slack in terms of demand for commodities uh, and uh, so the way you invest in commodities you look at basically these the supply demand situation and see how that unfolds so a lot of our exposure there has been around uh, uh, places where russia was a big player uh, but uh, it's been harder to access, uh, you know, uh, uh, Russian platinum, palladium, et cetera. Uh, and so there are other companies that can step in in that space. The, the issue with commodities is also that supply takes a long time to come online. Uh, it's not like you can start a, a mine tomorrow and have a production day after. It takes a long time. So it's, it's a little bit of a challenge there, but uh, they definitely are uh, more cyclically oriented as well so uh, that that's where our exposure is so not a huge bet they're not as a group you know energy and commodities are not a huge part of the emerging market benchmark anymore they used to be like 10 to 15 years ago so it's not like I don't, i'm not you know worried about the commodity cycle uh, day in day out more concerned about the consumption stories and 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 the tech story or the semiconductor story as opposed to you know the commodity side or the energy side. Do people still ask you about the BRICS? Whether there's going to be a common currency? Because it's an interesting story. Yeah, uh, that's time will tell. It's very hard from where I sit to see that becoming a reality because the the economic systems, the political systems are very different for these uh, countries. So they're they're oftentimes uh, pushing back at each other from a Border perspective, like India and China, is always a little bit on, you know, different terms in terms of their common border. So I, I, it's very hard to see. India has like all or like hundreds of Chinese apps banned in 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 India. Uh, EV market, uh, Chinese EVs companies don't have access to market in India. So there are a lot of like political stuff uh, that has to, I would say, uh, be a, a roadblock in terms of getting to like a common currency for a lot of these countries. They can do a lot of trade one-on-one -on -one in their local currencies. But as I said, like if, if you buy Russian oil in rupees, Russia doesn't really need the rupees. So where do, what do they do with the rupees? Like they just leave it in the economy. Same thing if you want to do a trade between Malaysia and China, or Malaysia and India in like a local currency. Um, dollar still is, you know, uh, a, like the primary uh, currency that's needed to do transactions across the world. So I don't but, see it changing anytime soon, but it is definitely a story to pay attention to going forward. Okay. Um, within that actually is South Africa. Is, is South Africa of interest to you in terms uh, of- We are overweight in South Africa. Most oh. unworked <laughs> because uh, they've had like uh, issues with the power supply. 
there have been rolling blackouts and things like that over the last uh, 12 months or so. So that's had it had its toll on the on the economy. Uh, but things are looking up uh, in terms of uh, private and public supply of energy coming to the market. So hopefully at some point you'll start seeing the benefits of that, and and that could be as soon as early next year. And and these uh, companies are trading at depressed valuations. So this is a good time to kind of anticipate that uh, turnaround in the economy there. Okay, a couple of great questions coming in. Let me put this to you. Um, yeah. Are the dynamics in India similar to uh, the so-called West regarding consumer debt and, and consumer confidence? Um, that not so much. Uh, Indian market is not really like, consumer is not that debt happy, if that's the right word, uh, not used to having access to credit. Um, so a lot of the transactions do happen cash or, or a very high percentage of equity when you're buying a house. So it's, it's definitely not the same uh, mindset. Having said that, you know, as economies do develop and you get access to credit, you will expect like, the consumption story to be driven uh, by that credit cycle and things like that over time. But the banks are very stable. Um, you know, some of the best banks from a stability perspective are based in India. So uh, not, 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 not the same story. Okay. And just briefly, sorry, we only have a minute left, but I just wanted to get a sense. So you, you mentioned Korea, but are you, are you, are you exposed to ASEAN? That's the um, not, not right now. We don't have uh, any, any positions. I mean, we're a 50 stock portfolio. So sometimes we don't have a position in certain parts of the market. Uh, so right now we don't have anything in ASEAN, but uh, we, we're always looking for ideas, like just the uh, right place, right time, right valuation, uh, right kind of uh, environment from a uh, local market perspective, and we might find something that works. You know, Indonesia did really well for us a couple of years ago, but uh, we don't have anything there right now. Okay. And, and just sort of to sum it up, you know, for Canadian investors, why, you know, we're making Canadian dollars. So it's its, its own story with the U.S. dollar. Maybe, maybe you mentioned it off the top, but why would they want to look to emerging markets? Yeah. I think the diversification story is quite intact. You know, the, the consumption story, the innovation story coming out of emerging markets. Uh, if you worry about the valuation of the U.S. market, then this is a good place to kind of have some diversification in place. Uh, with, with access to growth, with access to innovation and things like that. It's such a pleasure to have you here in Canada and to speak with you. Thank you, Abhijit Singh, for joining us here today. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. 
read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.